Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, a lot of people think that data is transmitted through satellites and it's transmitted wirelessly, but that's just not the case. We don't tend to think about these critical infrastructures unless they fail. And in the case of submarine cables, because they're way out at sea, that's another reason why I guess um, for most people, we don't really think about them. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, Research Officer and PhD candidate at the college, Samuel Bashfield, and Senior Fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Dr Anthony Bergen, join Dr William Stoltz to discuss the importance and vulnerabilities of submarine cables, critical infrastructure that is the backbone of modern communication. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The wrecks dissolve above us, their dust drops down from afar, down to the dark, to the utter dark, where the blind white sea snakes are. There is no sound, no echo of sound in the deserts of the deep, or the great grey level plains of ooze where the shellbird cables creep. Here in the womb of the world, here on the tie ribs of earth, words and the words of men flicker and flutter and beat, warning, sorrow and gain, salutation and mirth, for a power troubles the still that is neither voice nor feet. They have wakened the timeless things, they have killed their father time, joining hands in the gloom, a league from the last of the sun. Hush, men talk today over the waste of the ultimate slime, and a new word runs between, whispering, let us be one. Sam, Anthony, that is a poem by Rudyard Kipling called The Deep Sea Cables from 1893. And the reason I'm opening with that is because our discussion today on undersea critical infrastructure um, is one for which you were both very well informed. I also bring it up as I think that there is something a bit of a sadness to it, you know, in that um, Kipling is clearly optimistic that global communication would help bring about a sense of kind of international unity when he says, you know, let us be one. But I think as we'll discuss today, like seemingly everything, unfortunately, cables are very much kind of affected by, you know, geopolitics and international competition. But I suppose to start things off, Sam, the the cable that Kipling's mentioning there, um, you know, were mostly telegraph and telephone communication cables. But perhaps you can give us a sense of the, I suppose, the scale and function of modern infrastructure. That's exactly right, Will. So that cable, that that poem really refers to those telegraph cables um, that were so popular almost, you know, 100 years ago. And I think in the 1890s that the first cables were laid um, between Britain and the United States. But really the cables that we're talking about today, so we're not specifically talking about those um, power cables, but we're talking about these data cables that transit the, the, the um, under the ocean between different continents, different islands. So 
all in all, there's about 430 um, fiber optical cables that connect different countries and that transmit um, internet communications, uh, transfer data, um, and they're really core critical infrastructure to the internet, to markets, to digital economies. So, I mean, a lot of people think that, that data is transferred by satellites, but really these undersea cables transmitted over 95% of digital communications. And depending on where people listen to this podcast from, the, our voices we trans, um, turned into ones and zeros and they'll be transmitted through these undersea cables um, to the end user. So you're exactly right. These, these cables started um, as these telegraph cables, but now it's these high-speed fiber optical cables that really connect, connect the world in this fundamental way. Mm. I guess, um, Will, I, the only thing I would add, uh, just so we uh, get the conversation focused, is that um, Sam and I are not um, talking about um, submarine electricity cables. Uh, at least it, we haven't addressed that in, in the uh, the paper for the Security College. Um, look, you know, uh, submarine electricity cables are also likely <laughs> to become far more important as the world transitions to uh, to clean energy. Indeed, there's a solar farm planned for Darwin that will have a submarine uh, cable, electricity cable, uh, that will supply up to 15% of Singapore um, power requirements. Uh, there's plans for a, a new subsea electricity cable between um, Tasmania and the mainland. So, um, you know, that's another dimension. Uh, you know, as, as Sam highlighted, um, we've, we're focused uh, in, in the paper that we've produced uh, for the Security College on um, data cables, but um, on environmental grounds, um, we're also likely to in the future, I think, um, see an increasing number of um, subsea electricity cables as well. Yeah, fascinating. And I suppose I'd really like to get a sense from both of you um, about what are the types of threats, both, I guess, naturally occurring or man-made that, that are impacting the kind of security and viability of this type of undersea infrastructure, I suppose, particularly communication cables. Sure. So when we look at the current challenges that these cables are facing, um, we can group them into a few different categories. So the first one is natural, commercial and recreational hazards that damage these cables. So every year there's about 150 to 200 cable faults um, that occur due to these types of hazards. And this includes things like boating anchors. About 70% um, of damage to submarine cables is caused by these types of threats. But we also have damage that can be caused by earthquakes, landslides, volcanic activity and extreme weather. The second type of threat that these cables face um, is state and non-state risks. So we have risks such as sabotage, interference, terrorism, that although there aren't many examples of these actually happening, they are still persistent threats to submarine cable locations. The, the cables themselves are at risk, but it's also the landing sites and these data points that are publicly known uh, places that can be, um, that allow interference by adversaries. We also know of several Indo-Pacific states that operate submarines that are capable of um, interfering and tampering with submarine cables while underwater. But to get to the point I raised earlier, it's more—it's incredibly difficult to, to tamper with these cables underwater. And at the landing sites, it is far um, more more high risk setting for cable um, cable sabotage. And states can mirror um, mirror data once it's been intercepted. 
There's also other threats um, around access for maintenance and repair services, around how long it takes for a cable to be fixed in different countries. I mean, there's only a limited supply of ships that are able to transit out to these points. Um, you know, it could be in the Pacific or in the Indian Ocean to be able to fix cables once they've been damaged. And often these crews are hampered by by procedures, security checks, approvals that they need to undertake and able to fix to fix different cables. So speedier repair is really important in that regard. Also, there's regu- regulatory inadequacy. So UNCLOS, United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea, um, is the primary but not the only international legal regime uh, that focuses on submarine cables. And to put it bluntly, a lot of countries aren't satisfying the, their commitments of UNCLOS. Finally, so China is an emerging supplier. Um, a lot of countries are seeing that as a threat to these submarine cables. So the four biggest submarine cable contractors are a United States firm Subcom, a Japanese firm NEC, um, and French, but although it's now owned by Nokia, um, Alcatel Submarine Networks. So it's important to note that these these companies, they're not government-owned, they're not, uh, but they're private companies, but they're headquartered in these different countries. Mm. So... HMN Tech, which used to be called Huawei Marine Networks, um, now is a Chinese-based company that now has about 10% um, of the submarine cable market. There's been a lot of fears around the world of data security um, attached to, to different bids that Chinese companies are making. And for instance, HMN Tech is actually listed on the US State uh, Department of Commerce's entity list, which limits the supply of US material to the company. So really, there's a whole range of, of challenges mm. that these submarine cables face, both both um, around states, but also around those natural, commercial and recreational issues that that do cause the vast majority of cable faults around the world. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Anthony, I suppose I'm interested to kind of tease out a couple of things that, that Sam mentioned there that you might have um a take on it. It sounds as though that um, the disruption and interception of submarine cables is actually kind of um, built into the military planning of um, a lot of countries. You know, Sam mentioned there that um, submarine there is submarine capability to actually intercept and interfere with cables. Is that the case? Uh, look, technically, well, it's quite challenging, and uh, I'd be interested in Sam's uh, reaction to. Uh, as well here. Look, I think technically it's quite difficult to actually tap um, the the cable. I mean, you've got the insulation, and then within the cable itself, you've you know you've got a uh, an electrical uh, voltage um, 
So, yes, you've got to cut those, and then, of course, you've got to get to the actual fibre itself where the data is transmitted, okay? Um, now, look, you know, um, a submarine, I guess, uh, a hack could open and uh, someone um, could take the cable and, and, and undertake that sort of necessary cutting. Um, that's not, so what I'm suggesting is that technically it's pretty difficult and the cables themselves have sensors. The operators would know if um, there was actually tampering um, on the cable in the way I've just described. So it's pretty remote. That's not to say, though, in responding to your question, that a, a submarine wouldn't know where yeah. submarine cables are. Um, and then, you know, as I think as Sam alluded to, there's a whole range of ways in which the the cable itself could be damaged, whether it's, you know, uh, through placing explosives on the cable or dropping mines or, you know, there could be military-grade drones that drop munitions, um, you know, submersible uh, divers, etc. cetera. But you, you'll, the actual t uh, sort of tapping, uh, there's no... Cases, uh, I don't think, Sam, where we can point to that we found where there was a successful tapping of a submarine uh, cable. Um, but look, it's 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 a theoretical possibility. I think, as as um, Sam said in his re response, landing stations are probably um, more likely. Um, you know, power could be cut from the landing. Uh, stations, you could have improvised explosive devices on the landing stations. Um, you could have cyber attacks mm, because yeah. there are uh, industrial systems that control the landing stations. So you could have a hacker, for example, um, interfering with with the with the uh, systems, um, computer systems that control the overall uh, cable uh, system. So. Um, it's the landing stations and um, that that are also vulnerable, and um, <clears throat> you know they're often um, uh, made public. It's not too difficult to actually find out where landing stations are. In fact, there's actually a website. Yeah, so Anthony's exactly right. It is incredibly difficult to tap those cables while they're underwater. I mean, the, the, the famous Cold War example is Operation Ivy Bells, in which, which was a joint US Navy, CIA and National Security Agency operation that tapped some cables um, that were connecting Soviet fleet, fleet base in Vladivostok. And basically, the, the, you know, it, it's incredibly costly to do these types of operations and a submarine has to go and attach a um, device to, to the cable and it has to go back every every month to retrieve that data and, you know, and, and put a new device on the cable. So, you know, it, it's incredibly costly and you don't get that information in real time because you have to send a submarine, you have to send divers down there to actually retrieve it, to take it back and, and to see what's what's on, on those on those reels or, you know, on, on, the, on that data. But... As Anthony said, that those submarine cable landing stations are just such a, a, a lower mm. cost, high reward option. And as I mentioned before, um, that there's been examples of, of data being quote unquote mirrored. So in, in the sense that the data is transmitting to where it wants to, where it needs to go, but it's also being mirrored to to some kind of device that's recording it. So people on either end are none the wiser that anything's been taking place. 
Uh, but at, at the same time, all of this data is being mirrored and it can then be be processed and, and fed to different intelligence agencies. So it's really on, on the land um, and at these landing stations where some of the biggest threats can can arise. Yeah, fascinating. And I suppose that gets us, uh, I guess, to what capabilities um, Australia has in order to kind of bolster the resilience of this cable infrastructure to threats. And it sounds as though that perhaps the the kind of more, more urgent challenges to the, the resilience of this infrastructure are things like um, natural hazards that might cause the cables to kind of degrade or be disrupted. So I'm interested, I suppose, to get a sense of what what capabilities are needed to kind of improve the resilience of this infrastructure and uh, who actually provides it? It's a really good question and multi-part question. So who, in terms of who provides it, it's the private sector. So government agencies don't have the capabilities um, or, or, or the or the ability, in a sense, to actually make these repairs. I mean, these these cables are owned by the private sector, they're operated by the private sector, but obviously government and, and citizenry more generally have a huge interest in, in these submarine cables. In answer to the first part of the question, there isn't really much that can be done around um, earthquakes, natural hazards, volcanic activity, aside from obviously trying, trying to lay these cables um, uh, in, in, in safer locations. But in a sense, one of the biggest um, tools that Australia has is its cable regime, Australia's Telecommunications Act of 1997. And what this really does is it declares protection zones around submarine cables within Australian territory. So that really tries to stop boats and recreational um, vessels from, from damaging cables through anchors. It also sets out stringent criminal offences for unlawful conduct um, near these cables. It also ensures that telecommunications companies obtain permits to be able to lay these types of cables. And really, this regime can 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 help to stop those that thirty percent of cables that are damaged due to those kind of human induced intentional or accidental um, damage, you know, such as boating or, or, or diving or other recreational types of activity. So, mm. I'd say that, that promoting Australia's um, Australia's regime as, as almost like a gold standard that can be potentially adopted by other countries is one of those really important ways that Australia can um, help other countries to protect the cables that, that are connecting their regions. I, I just add there, Will, that um, we wouldn't want to um, be accused of being naive in one sense because while Sam's spot on that our cable regime is regarded as the gold standard, it isn't the case, sadly, that one size fits all. I mean, you know, within each geographic area, there's going to be different configurations and different maritime and ocean um, space pressures. So, um, you know, the sort of measures in, in our legislation around, you know, uh, publishing where the cables are and <clears throat> sort of banning uh, particular types of activities, yes, is a general approach. But... Uh, it, it is definitely exportable, but um, yeah, it's not a case that we that the temp template can be dropped on every single <laughs> country. Um, look, the, the the other obvious point to make, Will, about you, you know um, Sam's uh, response about vulnerabilities and so forth, is that we saw a classic case in January this year in the case of Tonga. Um, where its single cable um, was cut through through a volcano and then there was a tsunami. Um, you know, it took over 
I think nearly six weeks, and it's still. I just looked today; it, it, it's still patchy. The 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 repair operation. There was a repair ship that uh, came from Papua New Guinea, but obviously, uh, in terms of uh, vulnerabilities, obviously island countries, small island countries that where they have only one cable coming off a branch line. Mm. Is extreme. Make it makes them extremely vulnerable. Now, in the case of Tonga, frankly, I was surprised that they didn't have a plan B because mm. they were actually they lost their cable uh, in 2019 through an anchoring incident. Um, so I was a bit surprised that this time there was no uh, sort of plan uh, to have uh, that they they could quickly mobilise when 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 the uh, the cable was was disrupted in January, so uh, mm. you know, issues to do with what sort of redundancy. Um, uh, obviously, having having more than one cable is important, but there is, as Sam rightly pointed out, these cables are, are, are owned, built, operated, including, by the way, the repair ships. They're, they're owned by private companies. So there's a commercial, there has to be a commercial case, okay, to, to, to build uh, further further cables into these vulnerable countries. And, um, you know, maybe we'll come back to that where Australia could help out on that. Yeah. Okay. It's it's it does strike me as um quite a challenge, a technical challenge to be able to be keeping up with the scope of of uh, vulnerabilities to these systems. And and I suppose who is actually given given this infrastructure is transnational across so many jurisdictions. Who is actually responsible for monitoring the vulnerabilities and assessing the vulnerabilities of this infrastructure? Because you know you mentioned the the instance of of um of Fiji there um and and Tonga. Um, and other countries in the Pacific, um, I, I suspect that not all these countries have got the um, technical capacity within their own systems to be able to be monitoring the, the full scope of vulnerabilities to their infrastructure. So how is it actually um, assessed across the network? So I'll start off. I mean, it's, it's really interesting that there's two points to make. The first one is that, yes, different countries have different capabilities and different capacities. Um, to, to monitor these cables when they're in their territorial waters. But the other important point to make is that when these cables are transmitting, uh, are transiting the high seas or, you know, international waters, th- there's a real regulatory gap mm. in terms of who's responsible, um, how, the, how those cables are protected. So it's important to note that, you know, Australia's legislation only covers the cables when they're in Australian territory. But when they're in, in international waters in the high seas, you know, Australia doesn't have jurisdiction over that area. But um, I think Anthony could add more to that point on that international law element. Well, the short answer to your question, who governs um, the transnational uh, subsea cable network, is no one. Um, mm. There's no international agency or body um, that has formal carriage of doing what you're alluding to, you know, information sharing, um, capacity building and so forth. There's no, there, there is a thing, and I think Sam might have mentioned it, um, the International Cable Committee, which is a, a group of um, officials and, and, and uh, industry representatives that's really, um, you know, discusses many of these issues, but it doesn't have formal responsibility, okay, over the resilience of the cable network. So, 
there are legal issues uh, that, that uh, Sam's just alluded to. Um, you know, when, when the cables go through areas of maritime dispute uh, where they operate in international waters, um, then, you know, who is responsible? Some people, some international lawyers are now arguing we need a new international convention. Mm. Um, you know, the convention on, on cables goes back to, to telegraph, um, you know, last century. So, there, there, you know, there, there's probably some a body of work to be done on developing international legal responses. I mean, people who work around counterterrorism um, have also suggested some of the counterterrorism conventions might be applied to deliberate uh, damage, intentional damage of the subsea network. Um, you know, there's currently, it's nearly completed, an international convention on biodiversity on the high seas. And some people have suggested that maybe, you know, cables could be drawn into that. Not, by the way, that I don't think there's any evidence um, that um, subsea cables have adverse environmental impacts on, on the ecosystems. But, um, you know, some some lawyers have pointed out that obviously in the context of biodiversity conservation, then that needs to also think about, you know, the, the, the increasing uh, growth of, of subsea cables. So the short answer, Will, to your question, who's responsible? No one. Um, mm. And I think in part, can I just say one of the reasons I think Sam and I got interested in this subject was because it's it's a fascinating area that crosses one of my principal interests, maritime security, but it crosses cyber security, it crosses ocean governance, it crosses military strategy, it crosses, mm. as you alluded to in your opening remarks, geopolitics. So it's... It's one of those areas I think where people forget about, um, mm. maybe because you know they're, they're gigantic like garden hoses lying way out at sea, um, and you don't tend to um, to think about them unless there's a failure. And um, a Tasmanian friend of mine, when I told him that the Security College are publishing a paper on submarine cables, he said, well, gee, I wish we'd had that in um, earlier this year when, when the subsea cable to Tasmania uh, broke down for eight hours. Um, it was through an extraordinary series of coincidences. There were constructions on land, both on the mainland and in Tasmania, that broke the Cable and, and Tasmanians were out were without um, internet access for I think seven hours. But my point is that we don't tend to think about these critical infrastructures unless they fail. And in the case of submarine cables, because they're way out at sea, um, that's another reason why I guess um, for most people we don't really think about them. It's not that we don't think about them. A lot of people don't even know that they exist. You know, a lot of people think that data is transmitted through satellites and it's transmitted wirelessly, but that's just not the case. I mean, you know, such a gigantic proportion of data is transmitted through these cables because they're able to be just incredibly high speed, incredibly um, high, high bandwidth. You know, they can transmit so much data at, at any one time that they're just, e even though there's, you know, potentially some people could say more high tech solutions in, in satellites, submarine cables just are able to provide speed and that bulk of data that they just uh, are still, you know, such a long time, you know, 100 years on from those telegraphs being founded, you know, they're still such a critical infrastructure and underpin you know, every element of our digital lives. 
Yeah. So it sounds like um, even though we are seeing, you know, lots of great fanfare around Elon Musk's Starlink and all these sorts of things, that the reality is, is that to kind of be the backbone of our our future digital enabled society, we're only going to see kind of a deeper reliance on this infrastructure. And I guess given that and given the kind of confluence of various issues that intersect at um, this infrastructure that you pointed out, Anthony, I, I suppose, um, you know, you've, you've outlined one of the things that um, probably needs to be addressed, which is the international governance around these issues. But in terms of other steps that Australia can take to kind of improve its own resilience and the resilience of, um, you know, regions important to its interests uh, to the issues affecting this sort of critical infrastructure, what what sort of things should Australia be investing in? You know, Sam mentioned the... Um, you know, the, the reliance on private sector firms for these sorts of um, servicing and maintenance, is, is that something we should have a sovereign capability on or, or is it the case that we should be investing in simply just having more of these connections? Sure. So I don't think sovereign capability is quite the right answer, but it's almost a, a bit of a blend between these two and I'll explain what I mean. So in terms of another step Australia can take to really bolster um, its own cable security, but also the cable security for for its neighbours, especially in Pacific Islands, um, is, is, is through assisting to fund and, and also assisting with different cable projects. So what I mean exactly is in terms of, um, if, of backing, backing uh, cable projects in the Pacific to really avoid those Chinese-backed alternatives. So we've seen a lot of different proposals by HMN Tech um, to, to, to fund different cable networks in that region. But Australia has really stepped up in more recent years. Um, and, and even though we, we talked about these cables are all private, um, owned by the private sector, there is some examples of Australian government actually having an interest in these cables. And one of the examples is the Coral Sea Cable Company, which connects Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands to Australia, and which Australia is actually a part owner um, of the company that owns, owns that cable. So there exists a lot of potential for Australia to partner um, with, with other countries such as India, the UK, the EU to fund and back these types of cables. Also in 2020, um, Australia um, partnered with Japan, the United States to finance an undersea cable to Palau. So there's a whole range of, of examples of Australia really stepping up, um, both to ensure that these countries in the Pacific have, have, have a reliable connection and also to, to kind of ensure that the companies that, that are laying these cables um, uh, have, have the right interests in a sense. I just add a couple of um, extra points to what Sam's just set out. Um, look, I think information sharing is very important and our paper uh, suggests that um, we leverage multilateral organisations like the Pacific Islands Forum, the Indian Ocean Rim Association, um, the ASEAN Regional Forum, where issues to do with cable resilience can 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 sort of be discussed. Um, you know, best practices um, uh, promoted. Um, I think there's more that we can do to promote. Um, uh, maritime domain awareness uh, and integrating subsea systems into MDA systems. Um, one of the most interesting proposals to come out of the recent Quad uh, meeting in Tokyo was the uh, proposal for an Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness Partnership. Um, now, that would be leveraging commercial available satellite 
data for tra- for, for to produce tracking. As I understand it, it wouldn't produce actual images, but that sort of commercial satellite data shared through the region could well also be quite applicable, I believe, to the subsea uh, critical infrastructure as well. Um, look, Sam's right to stress um, the private, the importance of the private sector, but your question was, Will, whether there's a role, further role for government. I mean, one area which we didn't canvass because of space reasons, I suppose, in the paper is um, whether national government should invest more in, in cable repair ships. I mean, mm. there's only a, there's only about 14 in the world. And, wow. you know, there's very small capacity. Now, you know, in the case of that Tongan disruption, um, it was fortunate that one of the cable repair ships was in Papua New Guinea. Um, so maybe there's a case, uh, I'd have to think this through, uh, but maybe there is a case of investing um, in terms of n- national l- repair ships. It could be leased back, by the way, mm. by government um, to private operators. But I think that's a, that's an obvious area where, um, you know, uh, Sam's already referred to the fact that we've stepped in and provided alternatives um, to Chinese-built cables, but maybe that's another area where Australia could make a contribution with our with like-minded partners about investing in in, in uh, repair ship uh, capabilities. Yeah, it certainly wouldn't be too far of a break of precedent from um, other telecommunications in- investments that the government's made in recent times, such as the the joint partnership with Telstra to um, acquire Digicel in the Pacific. So it's clear that the government is kind of thinking broadly about what options might be out there. And another one that you do um, mention in your paper is um, the apparently the Northern Territory is engaging in looking at a new connection out of Darwin. Um, why is that? connection potentially significant? Look, I think it's significant, Will, because um, there's an increasing uh, defence presence in in northern Australia and um, at the moment that defence presence is somewhat constrained by sort of fairly thin telecommunications infrastructure and really inadequate um, high-speed data links. So anything that can increase the bandwidth um, to support you know, military uh, training and exercises, um, I think is is good. So having a fast, secure, high-width sort of uh, bandwidth data is really, I believe, um, critical to, you know, modern defence and intelligence platforms. Now, the proposal that the Northern Territory Government have put is to build a branch line from, uh, from Palau down to Darwin that would provide this capability. And by the way, of course, such a data link would allow us fantastic access to Southeast Asia in terms of, um, you know, an enormous e-commerce market into Southeast Mm. Asia. Um, So the proposal that the NT government would like the Australian government to uh, consider back um, is is to build, uh, as I say, a branch line from this uh, Trans-Pacific um, cable uh, down to Darwin. Uh, you know, there's no publicly costing, but my understanding is it would cost around a hundred million dollars. Um, not exactly small change, but in the context of when you quoted the Digicel uh, investment, that was over a billion. 
dollars. Um, so I, I, I think, yeah, the Darwin branch uh, as part of a Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think would open substantial commercial and strategic opportunities for Australia. Um, you know, it would give us access to a trusted subsea fibre optic cable um, that, um, you know, uh, would go into Singapore um, and um, doesn't wouldn't pass through the South China Sea. So I think there's many arguments um, where the Australian government should consider um, this kind of investment to support what the Northern Territory is hoping to, to, to do. Fascinating. Well, thank you both so much for your time. I started the um, podcast by reading out a poem, and I originally would like to have um, ended it by by singing a song, "The Under the Sea" from um, the Little Mermaid. But unfortunately, I believe we don't have the copyright for that one. So I'm going to just have to thank you both for your time, uh, Sam, Anthony. Thanks so much for joining us, and and hope to have you back on the program uh, shortly. Thanks, Will. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Will, for the opportunity. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.